Well, hi, I am Patrick Schwenk, and I am so thankful that you are listening in with me today at Root Like Faith. It is our deepest desire to encourage and equip men and women to be rooted in God's Word, transformed by the love of Jesus, and moved by His mission and the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing is more important. Well, today I'm really excited because we have a special guest. This is someone that you have heard us talk about many times here on the podcast. Uh, someone Ruth and I have had the privilege of knowing and uh, being friends with uh, for over 20 years now. And so we're going to be talking about one of our most fundamental rights as human beings, the right to life. And I want to just say up front that if you are somebody who has maybe experienced an abortion or you know somebody who has experienced an abortion, I want to just encourage, encourage you right up front to listen to this entire podcast because we're going to be talking about how the good news the gospel of God's love and his grace and his forgiveness offers healing and hope like nothing else can. And so I just can't wait to share today's episode with you and introduce you to our guest. And so let's get started. Well, my guest today is Michael Spencer. Michael has served as a pastor for 23 years and now serves as the founder and president of Project Life Voice, a gospel-driven human rights organization that equips and inspires pro-life ambassadors to speak compellingly and to act sacrificially on behalf of the most vulnerable, most abandoned, and most oppressed among us, our pre-born neighbors targeted by elective abortion. Mike has a burden to awaken the church to the plight of mothers facing unplanned pregnancies and to the little ones they carry. He travels extensively throughout the United States and beyond, speaking in churches, at banquets and conferences, and on high schools and university campuses. He addresses thousands of students and adults each year. Mike is a gifted and much sought-after communicator who brings a pastor's heart to the often emotional and divisive issue of abortion in a way that is both gracious and compelling. He and his wife, Barb, have five children, including a daughter they adopted from Guatemala. Mike and his family currently reside in Salina, Ohio. Michael, welcome to Root Like Faith. Well, thanks, Pat. It's great to be here today. Well, Mike, we, we have joked many times uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks, you know, Ruth and I, we, we've talked about you and Barb so many times on the podcast that we've joked that you're kind of like the hidden guest or the hidden co-host, uh, you're sort of <laughs> the, the third co-host, um, well, perhaps. Well, it's been good for my self-esteem, that's for sure. <laughs> well, this is really good. So our, our listeners um, will have, uh, they'll be familiar uh, with you and with Barb. They, they've heard us talk about uh, both of you and your family. As we've said before, we're just so grateful uh, for you guys, for your family. I think Ruth and I weren't even married yet um, when we would oftentimes come over and hang out with you guys on a Friday night or Saturday night. And you guys as a family, both then and, and still today have just been such an encouragement to us, such an example and such a, mod a model. You guys have, have really formed us and impacted our family and uh, so many ways beyond what, what I can s express. And so we're just really grateful for you. And as I've shared on the podcast, and I write about in the book too, you've just been a dear friend um, as uh, you know, I was walking through my cancer diagnosis and treatment. Our listeners know that you're a stage four ca uh, throat cancer survivor, and uh, you have just been somebody who has uh, shown up and, and continues to show up in, in our lives. And so we're just incredibly grateful for you and for Barb and your family. I, I want to kind of switch gears now as we move into to talking about, I think, such an important issue that, that we are uh, continuing to face in our culture, that we uh, continue to face in the church. And, you know, I, I was sharing with you earlier that I was, I think, a junior in high school when I started coming to your student ministry. Um, my dad had been in full-time ministry up until that point. I think maybe in junior high, he transitioned out of full-time ministry. 
And it was probably about maybe my sophomore, junior year where I started attending your church there in Fort Wayne, got involved in your student ministry. And it was really there that I became, um, I think, exposed to uh, to the abortion issue for the very first time. It wasn't that I was pro-choice before that. I just I was unaware of, of the issue mm-hmm. and didn't have a firm understanding of what was going on, what was at stake. And so I'm so grateful for in those early years of, of my high school years, just catching a vision for why God cares about this and why it's so important. And I remember as a student um, being very involved in, in the pro-life movement with you and, and with the church. And so I'm just so grateful for, for your influence in that area and uh, for God just working through you to give me a real heart for the unborn. And I'd love for you as we get started, just to share a bit of your testimony. I mean, how did you get involved with the pro-life movement? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for your kind words. The, the uh, uh, friendship uh, feelings uh, that you've expressed are certainly mutual on my end as well. Thank you. I, um, I, um, Late into my high school years and certainly early into my early 20s, um, I sort of defaulted to a so-called pro-choice position. I knew that abortion was wrong, but like a lot of Americans, I saw it as a necessary evil. But what happened to me was that I came to faith in Christ in September of 1983. I was 21 years old at the time. And um, my wife, who was not even my girlfriend at the time, Barb, um, led me to Christ. We worked together at a bank in in the Detroit area. And I started attending church with her. Uh, right after that, where her dad actually was the pastor. And about eight, seven, eight, nine months, something like that, into my newfound faith, I walked in on Wednesday night, um, completely unaware of what was kind of on the uh, on the schedule for the evening. But I walked out an hour and a half later, forever changed, because uh, they showed the, the, the pastor showed the movie The Silent Scream, which was kind of a groundbreaking pro-life film back in 1983. I think it actually came out just into 1984 when I saw it. But I couldn't believe my eyes. I saw for the very first time what abortion did to little girls and boys, and I couldn't believe it. And even as I walked out of that church that night, I remember leaning out of breath. I, I think it impacted me in a way that I don't, I don't know that it impacted anybody else that night. At least uh, it, it didn't appear to be that way. Yeah. But when I walked out, I remember leaning against a railing and just catching my breath. And I prayed, God, forgive me that I ever thought that this was a, a moral good or, or at least a necessary evil. And, um, and I also prayed, Lord, you know, uh, let me be a voice. And little did I know how he would answer that prayer later. But, uh, you know, when, then I, I went on to pastor churches, as you know, and I served in um, youth pastor roles for seven years and in senior pastor roles, two different uh, churches for a total of 16 years. And my burden for the unborn and particularly my burden um, as it related to so many churches, so much of the church that has been silent just continued to grow. That burden continued to grow. And so eight years ago, I stepped into a full-time position with Life Training Institute. Some of your listeners, probably many of your listeners will know that organization, that ministry led by Scott Klusendorf, the premier voice in pro-life apologetics. And it was a a wonderful experience to be with them. And I just recently stepped out um, uh, to start Project Life Voice with you. Yeah, we're, we're going to be talking more about that in a little bit. And so I'm, I'm just, yeah, I remember when you transitioned from being in, you know, sort of full-time um, pastoral position into full-time pro-life ministry. And I just remember thinking, this just makes all the sense in the world, you know, just knowing who you are, your gift sets, 
mm-hmm. and and just your passion for the unborn, and yet you are still so involved in the local church and in uh, preaching and teaching and, and inspiring, you know, pastors not to be silent on this issue, and and so um, it's just been really neat to see your ministry in that area in high schools and and you know college campuses and offering workshops and churches, and yeah, you know, I think as a pastor. Um, that's been one of the challenging things for me, as you know, you know, this is, you know, something that I have, have spoken on, uh, at different places and at different times. And yet there's a lot of pastors that, that choose not to speak on it. And, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But one of the things I noticed early on in my pastoral ministry, almost 20 years ago, when I started out as a youth pastor, you know, it seemed at that time that every Christian band, every Christian artist had a cause connected to what right, they were yeah. doing. And I remember, you know, being at a, at a Rich Mullins concert, I can name other, but, you know, and, and, you know, people were, were really passionate about, about different causes. And I remember thinking, this is such a good thing and such a necessary thing. It was exciting to see the way that the church was waking up to different, you know, issues going on and, and uh, acting in ways that, that they should. But I also noticed another trend and that's that, that when it came to the abortion issue, um, that wasn't nearly as popular. And so you, you saw other issues uh, that were very important and, and are still very important and close to God's heart, um, you know, coming to the forefront. But, but it almost felt like there was an attitude amongst a lot of Christians as it related to the abortion issue. Hey, we've been there. We've done that. And that's, that's all the church thinks about and talks about. Of course, that isn't true. And so I, I noticed that that trend, you know, 20 plus years ago, and I think that that has changed a little bit in, in recent years. I think you're seeing a, a reemergence of, of young people in particular, um, college students, young adults right. that are being set on fire uh, in a new way for the, for the unborn, which is a really exciting thing and a necessary thing. So I, I do think you're seeing that kind of move back in the other, other way. But could you speak to that for a minute? I mean, why should Christians and churches be speaking on the behalf of the unborn. Well, first, you're right. I mean, you can speak out on behalf of those caught in the jaws of sex trafficking or on behalf of the homeless. Uh, and again, worthy causes, causes that I thank God that Christians are at the forefront of those battles. Yep. Um, but speaking out on behalf of the unborn targeted by abortion isn't cool. It's not hip. Uh, it certainly isn't politically correct. And really, I think what that indicates is that the church is taking her cues from the world rather than from God's word. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting in my thinking that only the unborn are treated with such contempt. I, again, spotted owls and polar bears uh, fare better than the unborn in many, many churches uh, throughout our land. But to answer your question directly, Christians should be speaking out on behalf of the unborn because Jesus commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to rescue those being led away to slaughter, to speak up for those who have no voice. And so the question then becomes, are the unborn our neighbors? And if we accept the clear teaching of human embryology, which, again, this is the consensus of human embryologists, that a distinct living and whole human being comes into existence at the moment of conception or fertilization. If that's the case, if that science is correct, then this means that the unborn child is indeed our neighbor. And Jesus said, of course, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. You know, uh, most evangelical churches and pastors uh, don't deny that life begins at conception. Most would be quick to acknowledge that. We know, for instance, when we celebrate um, uh, the birth of Christ each Christmas, that what we're really celebrating is the incarnation of Christ. We, we don't believe that Jesus took on flesh at birth. We believe he took on flesh when he came as a holy embryo in Mary's womb. Isaiah seven fourteen makes that very clear. So the question is, how can we celebrate as followers of Christ 
the incarnation of Jesus Christ and yet remain indifferent to the legalized killing of our tiny unborn neighbors. If we truly believe that life begins at conception, again, as human embryology teaches and as the Bible clearly teaches, then we are duty bound to act in a manner that's consistent with that belief. So imagine just very quickly, if we were witness to the legal killing of say 2000 toddlers every day in the United States. Now imagine if the church's response to that evil or that injustice was equal to our current response to those who are targeted by abortion. That would be a scandal of epic proportions. So the the question again is, um, and I think this is a question that every pastor, every church, every professing Christian really ought to contend with is, if we won't love the unborn as our neighbors, can we at least not can can we not at least love them as our enemies? Because Jesus commanded us to love our enemies, to pray for them, and do good for them. And so the question is: Are the unborn unworthy of even meeting this low standard? Mm. So yeah, that's good. That's yeah. good. No, I, I I appreciate that. I want to I want to talk about you know now just some ways that that maybe. Um, we can speak on behalf of the unborn because I think there are a lot of people. I know there's a lot of our listeners who who do care deeply about the unborn, and, and there are times where we just feel maybe ill prepared. We we feel inadequate um, to to speak to some of those common objections, and and so yeah. I want to just take a couple minutes. And I know people have written entire books on this, and you've got a book coming out uh, in the near future, and that, that addresses some of these. And of course, Scott's book is an excellent book, The Case for Life. But let's talk really briefly about some of the most common objections we hear against the pro-life position. One that I think of that you hear not from non-Christians mainly, but I think from Christians, and it's this. The Bible is silent on the subject of abortion. Oh, yeah. And that's a popular one. And you're right. we're, We're hearing that more and more, unfortunately. But the assumption behind that objection is a faulty one. And the assumption is that what the Bible does not expressly condemn, it therefore condones. Now, that's that's ridiculous. I, I mean, nowhere does the Bible, for instance, condemn torturing puppies or putting to- pouring toxins into our rivers. So are we to assume then that these actions are not wrong? Well, of course not. We, we know they're wrong by inference because God has called us to steward that which he has created. So we know that those act- actions are wrong. It's important for your listeners to remember that abortion is simply a method of killing innocent human beings. Um, Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 30, speaks of of evil men who invent ways of doing evil. And sadly, since Cain killed Abel, fallen mankind has become rather innovative in, uh, in the ability to devise methods to kill each other. We can do it with ropes, with guns, with knives, with poisons, uh, you know, the list goes on, right? The Bible clearly condemns the unjust taking of innocent human beings, innocent human life, Exodus 20, Matthew 5, and a host of other passages. And so we know from human embryology um, what a human being is. Uh, We know a human being begins at conception. Therefore, all of the Bible verses in both the Old and New Testament that are there, uh, that are put in place to safeguard the sacredness of human life are there to protect you and every human being at every stage of development. So, you know, I would add this, like, you know, if the Bible were to condemn by name every specific method of murder, uh, uh, sadly, our Bibles would be thicker than the IRS tax code and we wouldn't be able to carry them. (laughs) It'd be be even harder to read through. Yeah. (laughs) We don't need a Bible verse to expressly condemn the method of murder that we call abortion any more than we need a Bible verse to expressly condemn suffocating someone with a pillow, as Francis Beckwith says. Furthermore, we don't need a Bible verse expressly stating what classes of human beings we should not murder. For instance, we don't have a Bible verse that says, you know, thou shall not murder Hispanics or thou shall not murder freshmen in high school. We don't need that kind of a verse, nor do we need a Bible verse that expressly states 
you shall not murder little boys and girls who happen to be located inside of their mothers. It's really a silly argument. It's gotten a lot of traction. That's unfortunate. But the Bible is not silent. It's clear about the unjust shedding of innocent human blood. Yeah, no, that's good. I know we were talking the other day too. I mean, that that of course is is foundational. That that's uh, critical in terms of what God's word says about you know human value and dignity and in our um, yeah. you know obligation to protect that life. And and you know we were talking the other day about you know not only that, but but on top of that, of course, this is secondary to to the authority of God's word. But but church tradition speaks to this in in really very simple way. I mean, very clear ways. Yeah, and so, you know, the Didache, you know, is one example of that, that early church writing uh, that, that, you know, uh, of course, describes early uh, Christian practices and, and beliefs. And it mentions abortion by name. And, and so many of the early church fathers, you know, talk about abortion. And so, um, of course, the Bible is not not silent on the issue, even if it doesn't use the word specifically. Um, but church tradition is full of church history is full of of um, leaders and theologians and uh, followers of Jesus who spoke very clearly and specifically uh, ab right. about it. Um, here's another one, and, and maybe you know two and three. These are very similar, I think, in my in my mind. Um, but you know, we're coming into an election season, and mm -hmm. um, and so there are a lot of churches that that may or may not, or a lot of Christians who may not want to talk about it. And so oftentimes you'll hear this objection: uh, abortion is a political issue and off limits for the church. Uh, or, or similar to that, uh, abortion is a controversial right. and, and divisive issue, and so I'm, I'm called to protect the unity of my church. And so, speak to those those two objections mm -hmm. as well, because I do think you hear mm -hmm. those often, especially as we head into you know an election year and just how emotional okay. and divisive that can be. Right. Well, let me and let me deal with those uh, separately, like yeah. kind of like you laid those out. Let me deal with first of all with the objection that abortion is a political issue and off limits for the church. Um, I, you know, we, I often hear um, pro-lifers will kind of get a little bit defensive at this point and say, well, it's not a political issue. And I know why they're saying that, and I appreciate why they're saying it. But technically speaking, abortion is a political issue. Um, but it's much more accurate to say that abortion is a moral spiritual issue that has been politicized. Mm. And when you think of it, nearly every moral issue is politicized eventually. For instance, slavery, uh, war, the redefining of marriage in recent years. And just because um, uh, a moral issue is politicized doesn't render it off limits for the church. Now, this, this kind of a claim is really used to silence the church. And embarrassing, like, embarrassingly, like the first objection that you raised uh, there, Pat, it is most often used, or at least it's frequently used, if not most often, it's frequently used by professing Christians to justify their own silence. Yeah. But, but the, the, again, one of these focus questions can be very helpful to us here, and that is, is this, is the gospel for all people or only for those who are conveniently loved and protected? Now, a lot more could be said uh, about the role of the church with respect to politics, and, and I would love to take the time to do that. But suffice it to say that abortion is first and foremost a moral spiritual issue. The church has a moral duty to speak to it, regardless of what the political ramifications are. And ultimately, this is not an issue of partisanship. It is an issue of lordship. It is an issue of lordship, and I think we should see it that way. Yeah. So to address the second then, the second objection there that you kind of wove together with that one, that being that abortion is a controversial and divisive issue. And, you know, uh, pastors will say, you know, I'm called to protect the unity of my church, so I'm going to stay, with, stay away from that issue. So my response to that would be <clears throat> you can't protect something that doesn't exist. In other words, if your local church is divided over the subject of abortion, they're not unified. They're, that's disunity, not unity. 
before we can protect the unity of our flocks, we've got to protect our flocks themselves. That would be the second point that I would make. And this is the this is really the first calling of the shepherd is to protect the flock. In other words, the shepherd is first and foremost a sheep protector, whether he's protecting his flock from gossip and slander or he's protecting his flock from uh, false doctrine, false teaching or he's protecting himself or protecting, I'm sorry, his flock from the abortionist himself. So this this is a divisive issue. It is a polarizing issue out there in the world. And sadly, it is in many local churches as well. But we need to put this into a proper biblical perspective. We have children missing every Christmas from most of our local churches, children that ought to be there on the stage for the Christmas drama dressed like you know, little wise men and shepherds and angels and so forth. But in many cases, they're not there because they were aborted five, six, and seven years earlier. And, and again, in many cases, with the silent approval of their church. This should not be a controversial or divisive issue in the local church. And if it is, that the, the, the truly pro-life pastor doesn't exploit that division as an excuse to remain silent. Instead, he sees that division as his calling yeah. to drive that disunity, to drive that division or that confusion out of his congregation so that they can say as one voice with the Apostle Paul, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Yeah. So that should be the goal of the shepherd. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, I mean, kind of following up with that, I mean, what does pastoral silence or, you know, Christian silence in general cost the local church? Mm -hmm. um, well, first and foremost, of course, it's costing the lives of our own children. Um, when the pulpit goes silent, babies die. There's just no way around that. Um, and, and that certainly is the greatest travesty. But it's also costing... Uh, young parents. It's, it's um, when the public goes silent, ba babies die and young mothers and fathers become culpable in the deaths of their own children. And many of these will face a lifetime, many of these moms and dads will face a lifetime of pain and, and regret. Uh, a second thing that this costs, the pulpit silent, uh, silence that is, the second thing that costs the, the, the local church is that it damages our gospel witness. When, when we can speak adoringly, as we do, uh, of Jesus, the lover and the protector of children, but then we don't love children enough to protect them, to speak up for them, to sacrifice on their behalf. We are sending a mixed signal to a watching world. Now, I don't mean for a minute that the watching world wants us to be pro-life. I am saying that they need that kind of consistent witness from us. Um, a, a third thing, which is really maybe related to the second one here, is it's costing an enormous amount of pastoral credibility. Uh, you know, for many years, uh, the, the word relevance has been the buzzword in church planting and church growth circles. But ironically, many of the the, those same churches that, that are claiming to be relevant and are even in some cases boasting of their relevance, many of these churches have ignored the defining moral issue of our day, which is the legalized killing of our children by abortion. And the question is, how relevant is it uh, for a local church or a pastor to ignore the least of these and to leave young mothers and fathers in their guilt or to leave them vulnerable to making a decision for which they will later feel guilty potentially? Yeah. So I, I think it's, you know, there's other costs that, that could be stated for sure, but I think those are three big ones. Yeah, no, that's really good. I, you know, I want to speak to you know those that are listening who they're they're with you, they're they're with us, they're 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 they already have a heart for the sure. unborn, and they and so when I say they're they're with us, they're I mean you're you're speaking uh, to just what you're saying is resonating with them, and and so I want to speak to to those that are listening that are that are in that place, and yet at the same time really feel like they, they don't know how they can help in really practical ways. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they might feel like they, they just don't know what steps they can take to, to practically, 
you know, practically make a difference. And so, um, what are some ways that, that someone can, you know, just take those steps to become more of an advocate for the unborn? Yeah, good question. Um, and such an important one. And, you know, I, I guess I would, there's several things we could, you know, that, that your listeners could do. One of the things, and without question, the most practical thing, and perhaps the most powerful thing is to pray. Yep. Second Chronicles makes this, you know, very clear. We, we're all familiar with those, you know, those, uh, those words that if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear them, you know, and I, I will forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. And I think that's a promise that we should take seriously. Just very quickly to insert a quick objection that we often hear from churches and from pastors. And again, I, I want to say that I'm, I'm grateful uh, for shepherds who do speak up and, and champion the cause of the unborn and their, their young mothers who feel cornered by life circumstances. And thankfully, there's a growing number of those. But sadly, they're still in the minority. Um, and a lot of times pastors will kind of spiritualize their silence by by saying, you know, well, I think we ought to just pray about it. And, um, you know, my response to that is, okay, pastor, let's start Sunday. Will you lead us from the pulpit on Sunday morning? Will you pray, lead us from the pulpit, pray for young moms, young dads who are facing unplanned and perhaps unwanted pregnancies, pray for their little ones, pray for the abortionist and his staff. Can we start praying for them? Again, we pray for our enemies. Can we not at least pray for the unborn? So, on one hand, we should be praying. On the other hand, we shouldn't be using prayer as um, a way of spiritualizing our disobedience. You know, interestingly, yep. a lot of I, I don't know this. Of course, I can't prove this, but I think I, I think I'm in safe ground on safe ground here to say that I think that a lot of pastors who say we should just pray about it are the very ones who are least likely to do so, at least not publicly. Mm. So. But I do think we should be praying about it. I think that's yep. first and foremost. You know, we should be praying, God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Yep. Um, and the second thing is, I think if your church if um, your church is not championing the cause of the orphaned little ones who are scheduled to die or at least are threatened um, by legalized abortion, I would encourage um, your listeners to, to very respectfully to ask for a meeting with your pastor um, and tell them right up front why you want to meet. And don't hit them up Sunday morning after the sermon. So call them on <laughs> or, Tuesday morning. Or, you know, or before when, the sermon, for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, you know, and, and I, I think to just respectfully uh, go in, not with your guns loaded or, you know, with some axe to grind, but to respectfully go in and, and just gently but but firmly ask the pastor, Pastor, I, you know, I've been here for six years or whatever it is, you know, and uh, we don't seem to ever address this. And I'm just wondering, do you mind if I ask where you're at on the issue? Do you mind if I ask why we don't address it? Could we at least, you know, and I think this is a good call to action. I think it's, it's pastors need to feel this accountability. Uh, you know, they're they're dishing it out each Sunday and they need to be able to take it. Again, I think it should be done respectfully. But I think we're doing pastors a service when we lovingly confront them about their silence. We're, we're doing them a great service because they will be held accountable to God, according to Ezekiel 33 and 34, for for how they respond to to the unborn, yeah. but I think to to have a meeting with your pastor, um, to keep it brief, but to share your burden with him, to ask him at the very least, would he at least start on a uh, you know at least on a monthly basis, you know once a month, would you pray from the pulpit for for children scheduled to die by abortion? I think that's a great thing to do. I think uh, a little uh, a little um, self serving uh, uh, advertisement here. Invite <laughs> us, in. invite Pro- Project Life Voice into your yep. churches, into your your private high schools, your Catholic and Protestant high schools, your homeschool associations. We travel, again, as Pat said, throughout the United States and beyond, training audiences to make the case for life. To do that intelligently, to do it winsomely, 
um, and, and to be able to handle tough objections like what about rape and what about life of the mother and these kinds of objections that we oftentimes encounter. And, and we inspire them to act sacrificially on behalf of the unborn. So I think bringing us into your church or, again, to one of these groups that I've mentioned and letting us provide that kind of training, I think it inspires people. It emboldens them to go out and to be a voice. We really want to get people talking about abortion. Now, people are talking about it, but we want them talking about it in a way that's that's gracious, in a way that's compelling, and and, and so forth, and, and in a way that's redemptive, of course. Yeah. I would also say, um, uh, you know, if you are a pastor uh, listening today, I, I would invite you to invite us um, into your denominational conference, of course, in your local church. Maybe you've got a ministerial alliance uh, in your community that you meet with, a luncheon, that kind of thing. Um, we do that kind of thing as well. Again, we equip pastors to address abortion biblically, to see their response to abortion, not merely as a burden, but actually as a gospel opportunity. And so we would welcome that phone call. Those are a few things they could do. I think going to the abortion clinic, taking your children there um, and praying for those young moms going in, praying for the staff. I think it was something really powerful, um, not only for those going into the clinic to see us standing for life, but for our children to see that, you know, you mentioned the impact that had on you, Pat. Yep. So I think that those are, these are great things to do. Support your yeah. local pregnancy care center. They are, they are doing an unbelievable work. They are boots on the ground in, in probably in, in every community being represented here in your audience today and to find ways to support them financially. They are always in need of help that way, volunteers and so forth. No, that's, that's excellent. I, you know, I, just sort of piggybacking on what you were saying, it was so much fun to speak. You know, this this past summer we um, we had the Life Defenders uh, camp yeah. there in Fort Wayne, Indiana, at uh, yeah, Saint great. Francis University. I was able to bring you know our high school age kids to that. Uh, you know, my son and my daughter and, and several of their friends, and that was so much fun just to be able to, you know for me to be able to speak at a workshop there, and and of course you uh, were leading that and and speaking at those main sessions. And I'm just excited, just honored to be on that speaking team. We have such a great team, a growing team of men and women uh, who, who care about the unborn or are helping with events like Life Defenders and, and others. And so I, I just love that. That was so helpful for our high school students or for my, for my own kids to go and to be around other high school students um, that were yeah, passionate were about the unborn. You know, it was, it was quite a crowd and they come back every year and they bring... They want this teaching. Yep, absolutely. And so that was great. I, really quickly, I want to ask you one last question. But before we do that, what are your what are what are two or three of your favorite books? So for somebody listening, as another oh. practical way to feel more sort of confident or comfortable in conversation with, you know, coworkers or neighbors or friends, um, what are two or three books you would recommend somebody read if if they want? Well, to hear the more? first one at the top of the list uh, is definitely Scott Klusendorf's book, The Case for Life. It yep. has uh, radically impacted, profoundly impacted. Uh, the pro-life community. It's written at a very popular level. He lays out the case for life philosophically, appealing to science and appealing to basic moral reasoning, uh, dealing with tough objections. That book is absolute gold. Um, another one um, would be Defending Life by Francis Beckwith. Uh, that's a great book. And then The Ethics of Abortion is a little um, a little headier, um, but very, very good. It's The Ethics of Abortion by Christopher Kazor. Those would be three great titles. Okay. And, and then Randy Elkhorn's uh, Life Answers to yes. Point Arguments is also wonderful. Yep. Love, love that book. Um, so I want to end, you know, our, our conversation with, with this question, you know, as we were talking before, you know, I mean, I've been a pastor now for almost 20 years and I have, have preached on abortion at some of the different, you know, local churches that I've been, you know, had the privilege to serve at, be on staff at. And I think people would be blown away by the, the number of, of women sitting in churches that have had an abortion. 
Uh, I know that that really surprised uh, me mm-hmm. and you know people that we we loved and were so, you know serving in in different ministries, and yet in many ways we're we're still living under the weight of what a choice they had made you know years ago, uh, sometimes decades ago, and yeah, as, right. as we would preach on it in, in a loving and gracious way, but but also you know, it takes courage uh, to to preach on that. I was always surprised at, at the reaction to that. And, and I know we've said before that, that there's nothing that that offers the kind of hope and healing and forgiveness like the gospel does. And and there is no one who, who loves us and who is for us um, like Jesus. And, and so I want to, as we end our time today, really speak to those that might be listening that have had an abortion or have a family member, a friend who that's been a part of their story and it's been a crippling part of their story. And so how does the gospel uniquely offer healing and hope to someone who's had an abortion? Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad you've asked. You know, first, first I would say responding to abortion is a gospel issue. Um, and nothing brings hope and healing, as you've said, Pat, like the gospel. There is no sin, including the sin of abortion, that is so bad, but that God's grace is not greater still. I love the, the hope-filled, tender words of Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That, that is the gospel in one Old Testament verse, and, and, and the, the beauty of that, it, it's it, it just so rich. And that's true for everybody in, in your audience. That's true for you and I. We all need that. In fact, if you've had an abortion or you have been responsible for an abortion decision— you don't need one more drop of Christ's blood uh, credited to your account than anyone else in this audience or than, or, or than Pat or I behind these microphones. Right. But now, that said, as is the case with every sin, there is no forgiveness apart from Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The sin of abortion must be confessed as sin. And when it is, that's when we find real freedom. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 7 um, says godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, no regret. Uh, you know, you mentioned the the, the women and, and men in our churches who've been impacted personally by abortion. And, you know, I have the privilege of traveling throughout the United States. And I can't tell you over the last eight years how many women and men have come up to me afterwards, many of them with tears of joy in their eyes because they have already found that forgiveness, that freedom that comes um, through Christ. And, I, you know, I, I think one of the things that uh, maybe gets left unsaid too often, we, you know, we often hear when we talk about the gospel, we often hear that, you know, God forgives all sins. He can forgive all sin through Christ. And that's absolutely true. And, and, if, and if that was the end of the story, Christ would be worthy of our praise for all of eternity if the story ended right there. But he actually does something more than just forgive us. And when I say just forgive us, I'm not trying to minimize that, of course. But he goes a step further. Christ promises, and we know this because Paul makes this clear in Philippians chapter 1, that that Christ promises not only to forgive us of the sin of abortion, or again of any sin, but he promises to put us back together emotionally, Mm. to bring healing into our lives, to give us freedom, real freedom. I mean, John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is not a message we should be hiding from those in our congregation who have been wounded by abortion. Um, You know, this is the sweetness of the gospel is that Christ doesn't just forgive us, but he restores us to kingdom usefulness. And, and we're not damaged goods um, before the throne. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus shed his blood 
for those who have shed the blood of the unborn. I think that's pretty sweet. I, I, if I may, Pat, just deal with one quick objection to that. Yeah. Um, but before I do that, I just want to say again to those in the audience that have been impacted by abortion, I want to encourage you uh, to, to reach out to a, a local pregnancy care center. They are equipped to provide counseling for you, post-abortion Bible studies. Um, you, will, you will not be met with judgment. Um, they will be warm. Uh, I, I get to speak on behalf of many of these centers throughout the United States on a yearly basis, and I am impressed every time I go to one with the, the, just the tender care that they provide for women who've aborted their children, for women who are considering an abortion, and for those that are just facing an unplanned pregnancy and need some help. So I, I just want to encourage your audience. Just Do we have time for just one quick objection I could deal with? Sure. Okay. So on, on the heels of that, that question that you've raised, um, about the gospel uniquely offering healing and hope, we often will hear this objection that speaking out as a pastor will only inflict greater pain on those who have had abortions. And I, I just want to say, I think a fear of inflicting greater pain on those who've had abortions is a legitimate pastoral concern. It was for me when I was actively pastoring, and I, I think it should be for every pastor. But nothing inflicts greater pain than pulpit silence. Mm. And, and again, to quote uh, Scott Klusendorf, he, he says it well. He says, when the church goes silent, we don't spare those who've had abortions hurt. We spare them healing. Yeah. And I think he's exactly right. And I, I like to add this. When the pulpit goes silent, we communicate one of two messages. Both are regrettable. Either abortion's not so bad or the gospel's not so good mm. or both. In other words, if my pastor doesn't talk about it, I'm left to assume that, well, it must not be a big deal. You know, he, he speaks out against other sins, but he never never speaks out against this sin. It must not be a big deal. Or to assume the opposite. Well, because my pastor doesn't speak out on it, this must be the worst sin. I must be guilty of the un, of committing the unpardonable sin. It's so bad you can't even mention it from the pulpit. Mm. I think those are horrible messages. And I think we should take the counsel. And really, it wasn't counsel. It was a commandment that the Apostle Paul gave in Ephesians when he said, we speak the truth in love. And, and I think when we speak the truth in love, we can declare both the evil of abortion and the grace of God for those, those who have had abortions in the same sermon on the same Sunday morning. Yeah. And we can sit back then and watch God's spirit do his work because he will. Yeah. Boy, I love that. Um, thank you again. Um, you know, as I said at the very beginning, just thank you for uh, your, your passion for the unborn and just for your courage and, and compassion and just the example you've been to me. I, this has been a great conversation, and I just know that our listeners uh, are going to be grateful for it as well. And thank so I just want to thank you again, yeah, for your, for your friendship and leadership and just for your time and expertise in this area today. Uh, as always, you can go to our show notes on rootlikefaith.com forward slash podcast. There you will find Michael's full bio along with more info about Project Life Voice. And again, as we've already talked about, we've already mentioned, if you are interested in hosting a workshop at your church or school or, or co-op um, or in your home, uh, you can contact us. We would love to come in and, and do that. Those are so much fun. They're so helpful. And they're just a, a very practical way to feel more equipped and more comfortable to be a voice for the unborn. And so you can get those uh, details, that information uh, on the, the show notes at rootlikefaith.com. And so I want to also encourage you, you can uh, follow us on Instagram at Patrick W. Schwenk and at Ruth Schwenk or on Facebook. And as if I don't say it enough already, we are just thrilled that you are joining us and we welcome you into our family here at Root Like Faith. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast so you don't miss an episode. 